This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. Now, in February of 2019, the podcast would have been going for just on about eight years now, which is absolutely crazy to think how fast eight years have actually passed. It's interesting, actually, that you know, I've been listening to podcasts myself and you know, a lot of podcasts have come and gone, a lot of different podcasts with varying amounts of success. But after eight long years, AHP is still a year and hopefully will be here for many years to come. So I'm looking forward to that great milestone. Also too, we're not far off 200 episodes. Currently we're sitting at around 188 episodes. So that's also a great milestone coming up as well. If you want to join us on Patreon, a lot of people don't know what Patreon is. Patreon is a support platform for creators. Uh, So if you want to get the podcast well in advance of other general listenership, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash AHP. Uh, Join up and uh, support the show. That would be greatly appreciated. I've got a lot of fantastic people that support me on Patreon and uh, I couldn't do it without you guys. So again, as always, thank you very much to all my Patreon supporters. Today, we're going to be talking to Liberal Democrat Senator David Lionhelm. Probably about two weeks ago, uh, David put out a media release that he was going to be quitting the Senate and running for the upper house in New South Wales politics. So we're going to have a chat with David about many different things, including airsoft, gel blasters, self-defense, what he'd like to achieve if he was elected into the upper house at the March 2019 election here in New South Wales. If we can actually get David into the upper house of New South Wales, that would be absolutely fantastic to have more pro-gun representation in New South Wales representing your interests. So we'll bring and introduce David onto the show. David Lionhelm, welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. It's been a great time for the LDP. Two elected reps in Victoria, Dave Limbrick and Tim Quilty, which is fantastic news. I did a bit of, I guess, research last night. The LDP since 2013 now has four people, one of the fastest growing parties in Australia. Fantastic. Congratulations and welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. Yes, we're very pleased. We're, we think of ourselves as the quiet achievers rather than the the noisy, um, um, you know, stunt stunt doers. Um, we have been um, uh, steadily gaining ground, and um, when you compare us to other small parties that have started or begun with a standing start, won their first seat, um, our progress has been very good. Um, there are other other small parties that have not gone to the levels that we've now reached, and um, so compared to them. Uh, we're pretty pleased. Obviously, there are some of us who would like to do even more, even faster, but um, you've got to be realistic. And I, I think on um, on balance, uh, we've got quite a lot to be pleased about. Absolutely. I'm really, really impressed with Aaron Stonehouse from WA for such a young guy with such a, a good sort of head on his shoulders, uh, so to speak. He's doing a great job over there in WA representing his constituents, you know, firearms owners pushing airsoft. It's uh, good news. Yes, Aaron is uh, is a wonderful find. Actually, we didn't realise how good he was until he got elected. We knew he was pretty, pretty safe hands, and um, um, he helped us a little with our campaign, with getting preferences from other parties and that sort of thing, which in Western Australia is important. Um, but after he got elected, we and we heard him do some media interviews and and uh, 
start talking to others, we thought, holy mackerel, this guy really is very good. And the thing <laughs> is, he's totally on message. You know, he um, it, it's almost as if he's been listening to my speeches, um, got and read our policy pages and totally embedded them in his head. And he just sticks to them. He's superb. He really is superb. Uh, Victorian reps, obviously, too now. Are you surprised, excited? Are you, how are you feeling about it in general? Um, it happened exactly as we planned. Um, there was no accident and no luck involved. It was, uh, was all um, uh, well-organised and uh, well-orchestrated, and we set out to achieve it. Uh, oh, gee, I suppose the process started 18 months ago, two years ago, when, when we uh, had to re-register our party in Victoria. That was uh, quite a big effort. And, um, and then when we were thinking about our, our campaign, um, that, that's, that was pretty much sorted out um, uh, a good while ago. Um, Victoria is another group voting ticket state and, uh, and we are quite good at group voting ticket uh, negotiations with other parties and uh, we were um, pretty convinced we could win at least one and probably two seats. So we're realistic about our expectations. Our number one um, priority was Tim. Tim is a long-term member of the party, previously been on our national executive. He's been around for uh, over a decade. And uh, uh, David is a little more recent, but still a long-term member. And he was our second priority. So we won where we expected to in Victoria um, and and our strategy worked. I mean, you know, the old saying, I love it when a plan comes together. Um, this is a this was a very much a plan coming together. It's interesting. How do you avoid, you know, personality or policy conflicts? I mean, like what's happening with One Nation, there's been a lot of issues there. Um, how do you avoid that? How do you make sure you're getting the right person? Sure, we can't guarantee it's never going to happen in the future, but how do you deal with those personality and policy conflicts when they do arise? Well, there's a little bit of luck involved, but in our case, we probably need less luck than many parties because we know what we all agree on, our policies. We're all on the same page, um, small government, less, uh, less government involvement, lower taxes, less regulation, no exceptions. We don't make exceptions. We don't say, I'm libertarian, but for, we are all libertarians. Um, so having agreed, uh, you know, having uh, clearly got in our head what our policies are, what our philosophy is as well, um, then we don't even need to talk to each other much to know what our position is on 95% of things. Occasionally, there are marginal issues where um, it's not clear what the the um, small government option, or best small government option is, so there might be a little bit of discussion about that. But overall, um, you know, we don't really need to talk much to each other. And, and Aaron and I, for example, although we get on very well and um, very amiable relationship, we don't need to talk about policies that much just to sort of come out with exactly the same answer. So that, that helps an enormous amount. Um, we, But, I mean, I, I would hesitate to suggest that the Liberal Democrats are immune from personality issues or or internal arguments. We have plenty of our internal fights. and and But um, you, you probably have heard that we at one stage entertained the possibility that we might nominate Mark Latham as a candidate, either for the Senate or New South Wales Parliament. I've got that question went, coming up, yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> before he went off to join um, One Nation. Yeah. And then more recently we had Warren Mundine under consideration for the Senate. Now, 
Um, some people in, in the party thought we needed a high-profile candidate um, to, uh, to win seats, and perhaps they're right, although history with pro high-profile candidates would suggest it's not a happy, a happy approach. Um, if you think about any of the other high-profile candidates Liberals and Labor have had, hasn't hasn't ended well in most cases. But um, nonetheless, uh, the possibility that you might win the seat in the first place with a high-profile candidate was a, something we entertained. But I think what, you know, what's, what's now apparent from Mark Latham having joined One Nation and uh, explained some of the policies that, uh, that he now advocates, and subsequently Warren Mundine having joined the Liberals and advocated some of the policies he advocates, that they wouldn't have been compatible with the uh, libertarian philosophy that Aaron has been talking about, I've been talking about, and now Tim and David are talking about. Um, they are liberally minded. Um, when, I, when I say liberal, I say small L liberal. They're liberal minded. They're inclined to the small L liberal um, spectrum both in both cases, but they have some very serious exceptions. And um, uh, we liberal Democrats, we are... Uh, a party of principle, so exceptions don't fit into that. It's interesting you talk about Mark Latham. Was it? I mean, why did he decide to go to One Nation? If you don't mind telling us, was it purely just a firearm issue? Was he wanting to lead the LDP in New South Wales? I think we did speak at the SSAA Shot Expo, and I thought, will Mark Latham run in New South Wales? I had my suspicions you might run uh, for New South Wales Upper House, and I guess those suspicions have been confirmed. Whether you knew that at the time, I'm not sure. But did he want to lead the LDP? And I guess was that his end goal because he did obviously join One Nation as the, the leader of One Nation in New South Wales? I don't think Mark knew exactly what he wanted to do when he joined us and, and was talking to us. Um, I had, uh, I had a, um, quite a sizable or a lengthy meeting with him um, where we talked about a number of options. Um, he still at that stage wasn't even sure he wanted to return to politics. Um, you know, uh, going into politics, achieving well, particularly the levels he, he achieved, which is leader of the Labor Party, um, and then leaving and going back into politics later, is, is it's much, much worse than getting married a second time, so I'm told, not that I have a personal experience, you know. It's a triumph of hope over experience, as the saying goes. Um, most people who get out of politics swear on a stack of Bibles they'll never go back into it. It's not exactly a fun game. And uh, so... So Mark was in two minds, you know, as to whether he wanted to go back in again. There were considerations of his family. He wasn't clear whether he wanted to go back into state or federal politics if he did return. And he wasn't sure whether he was, would be happy with an upper house seat versus a lower house seat. He was toying with the idea of running as an independent um, for his local area, Wallandilly, which is um, in uh, Sydney's outer suburbs. And so there was a fair bit of uncertainty. Um, we didn't, um, I suppose, go down on bended knee to him. We waited until we were waiting to some extent to, to see what his, his preferences were, if he could tell us what he would, he would like to do and where, we thought, where he thought he could um, succeed. And, and it never happened. Um, it, you know, there was no hurry to make a decision, um, so we didn't. Was he pushing a for a decision or no? No, never pushed for a decision. Okay. And, uh, and uh, so in the end, um, the next thing you know, he'd left us. And, and we knew 
we know that when people leave the party, rather than just drop out of contention for nomination for a seat, if they leave the party, they're going to another party. The rumours about him joining One Nation by the time that happened, by the time he left us, were pretty strong. And um, I was also getting a little bit of inform inside information to the effect that that's where he was going. Um, I didn't think that was a problem. Um, I've, I've long thought that he's probably more compatible with... Um, with Pauline than he is with uh, the Liberal Democrats. Do you think that relationship will last with One Nation, or what do you think? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, most people say no, it won't, because um, he's you know he's he's feisty. Pauline's feisty. Um, Pauline is the absolute leader of the party. Um, they, there's no internal democracy at all in One Nation, and so what she says goes. And you know, for those people who fall out with Pauline. Um, that's that's the end of it, you know. She she has the final word. So um, I think uh, will their relationship last? Um, probably as long as they don't have a whole lot to do with each other. I suspect if uh, if Mark can stick to state issues and Pauline can stick to federal issues, when they if they have an occasional overlap that they actually talk to each other and compare notes, that probably would help. But um, most people who know both Pauline and Mark, and I'm one of them, um, would think that um, it, it's not likely that it'll survive long term. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit O. USAAustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. I just wanted to chat about a couple of things just for the Victorian election, just to finish off that particular area. Um, what do you hope will be achieved by the LDP and the reps in Victoria? I know it's probably too early to say, but I guess advocacy of the party would be probably one. What else do you perceive that they can achieve being in Victoria in the upper house? Because we saw what happened. I was quite shocked that Labor did so well. I really didn't think they'd do so well in Victoria, which kind of kinds of shocks me. You know, and people say that they should start building a wall in front of New South Wales in Victoria just to keep them in, <laughs> just, just to keep them in there. But what do you hope they're going to do? I mean, you know, fastest growing party in Australia, I would say at the moment from the research I did, it's, it's all good news going forward. Yes, although um, our guys in in the New South Wales uh, in the Victorian Legislative Council will struggle to exercise the balance of power. Um, the reason being that Labor has eighteen um, members in the upper house, and uh, they they need twenty one for a majority, and there are ten crossbenchers of of which um, uh, at least three will would vote with Labor, you know, almost almost all the time. Yeah. At least three. So, um, my feeling is that um, the Labor government in Victoria won't need our two votes very often. I, I think they're going to be reliant on negotiation and um, goodwill, basically. Now, that that also comes in pretty handy. Um, quite a lot of the things that I've achieved in in the Senate, uh, talking to the government ministers, has been achieved by just simple goodwill, goodwill and persuasion. But um, there are also some things where I wouldn't have got them 
if I hadn't had the government by the delicate parts <laughs> and and been threatening to squeeze. Now, I, I don't think that'll happen very often in Victoria. So Tim and David are probably going to be in a position where goodwill's terribly important. But the, the long-term uh, expectation is that they will establish the Liberal Democrats as a, as a credible alternative to the major parties for those people who who don't believe the government is the solution, but but I suspect that the government might be mainly the problem um, in uh, in Australia, and that's state or federal. And uh, so um, awareness of the Liberal Democrats becomes uh, much, much higher than it is at the moment, um, and we've got a fair way to go on that. And, uh, and as a consequence of awareness and familiarity with our policies and, and general uh, goodwill towards our policies, we can win a Senate seat down there and, of course, win the seats again in four years' time when the state election comes around. And in the end, uh, political parties um, have a, a very basic KPI, and that is winning seats. That's what we're there for. Um, our policies and principles are clear in the Liberal Democrats, so we don't have to um, uh, sort of sit around and examine our, uh, the lint in our navel to know what we want to achieve. Um, so our, our success will be measured by whether we can win the Senate seat down there and whether we can hold the seats in four years' time. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au Quality gear at affordable prices. David, talking about, I guess, Victoria, you know, this is obviously not really Darren Hinch's main cup of tea, but he seems to be rearing his head on duck shooting in Victoria. He's been on the radio saying the most stupid things about duck hunting that, that aren't actually true. I'm not even sure Darren's even eligible to own uh, a firearm due to his criminal history, whether you agree with what he did uh, previously or not. Um, is that something that the LDP guys in Victoria are going to try and ward off with the help of other program parties in Victoria? Yes. Um, obviously, Darren Hinch was um, very lucky in, the, uh, in this election and won, well, in fact, three seats um, in the Victorian Legislative Council, although one of the people who won has now de- departed from him, and uh, so he's basically down to two. Um, the, the issue uh, with, with uh, his party is they don't even know what they agree on. Darren Hinch doesn't really know what what his policies are. Um, The only issue that he's really passionate about, well, there's a couple, I suppose. One is um, uh, a register of sex offenders. He's he's really quite passionate about that. That's a long-term issue. And um, uh, mesh, uh, a vaginal mesh uh, issue, which is uh, basically a medical malpractice issue. Um, he's, He's campaigned on their behalf. But... Um, in the Senate, I'd say about 98% of the time he votes for the Greens. The issues that he stamps his foot about and, uh, and bores us all with his speeches are pretty much all the same ones that the Greens get all agitated about. He really doesn't have much of an independent, um, uh, independent position on anything. Um, he's not very effective in the Senate. Uh, he really thinks making speeches is about the beginning and the end of it all. He, he really doesn't... Um, set out to achieve very much um and 
and the, the question, of course, is, well, what what do, does his party agree on? What's his party's policies? Are they all going to be closet uh, greens uh, like Darren is? Well, not even in the closet, out of the closet. Um, <laughs> are they going to be? Are they going to be the same as Darren, or are they going to have different points of view? Um, we don't even know if that's going to be the case on duck hunting. And uh, duck hunting is is fits in a little pattern of of sort of animal type issues that uh, Darren takes up. Yeah, he's opposed to live exports, for example. Um, he's opposed to dugong hunting by Aborigines up in uh, northern Australia, um, and uh, duck hunting you know, fits into that uh, that pattern. Um, we but we don't know whether the two people from his party are going to take the same view, whether they agree with Darren on anything. And, and you know, if I was asked what do I agree with Darren on, um, I'd struggle to think of more than one topic anyway. And and that's only, <laughs> and, and that means that I can only think of about four things that I know Darren has a view on. Yeah. So um, the other thing that I think uh, will influence how that plays out is whether Darren can hold on to his Senate seat. He's running again. Um, he's in his 70s. Um, he's running again at the next election, which looks like it's going to be May now. Um, he didn't get enough to win a Senate seat in a half, normal half-Senate at the last election. Neither did I, for that matter, in fairness. But um, um, I'm pretty confident that our vote has increased um, in the two, two and a half years since the election. Um, uh, I'm, I wouldn't like to, to bet that Derren's has increased, as a lot of people were disappointed in him in Victoria. So I, I don't think it's at all certain that he will hold his seat. The other thing is that in the last election, 2016, he also had the donkey position. He was first on the ticket, and we know that that's worth uh, at least 1% or 2%. So um, I think there's a fair chance that Darren won't hold his, um, his Senate seat, and then what, does, what happens to his party? Um, if he's not around, do, his two, do the two MLCs from his party stick with the party, or do they become independents, and how does that you know, all play out. I, I'm not at all sure that um, he's a he's a long term political player. Before we get into the thicker stuff, I just guess I didn't ask you: Have you been doing any hunting or shooting? Been overseas uh, around Australia? Been doing anything in regards to shooting? I know you're probably pretty busy these days, so it's probably few and far between. But you've been up to any exciting stuff? I get to Hornsby Range in Sydney um, every little while. I shoot F class, full ball F class there, um, standard class. Um, that's that's uh, full ball rifles with uh, scopes on top. Um, we shoot between 300 and 800 metres. Um, I, I love it. It's um, it's great. I load my own ammunition. Um, but uh, but I, the truth is I don't get up there as, uh, as often as I'd like to. Life is um, very hectic in the Senate. Um, and um, uh, hunting, I, no, the answer is no. Um, the last time I was on the farm was just a few weeks ago. Um, you know how it is. Um, if you take a rifle, you don't see anything at all. You don't take a rifle. There's, there's always something to shoot at. There was a, um, a pig and uh, half a dozen little ones uh, trotted out in front of us um, well and truly within shooting range, and I'd left the rifle back at the house. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's the story of hunting, in uh, certainly in my experience. But... Um, 
nuts for the lack of interest, I can tell you. Absolutely. I want to talk about fishing. We spoke about this a bit earlier, but fishing is a hot topic at the moment. The recent fish kill, hundreds of thousands of fish killed due to poor government management, which seems to be, you know, on the increase. You know, wreck fishos get reamed if they happen to not maybe know an undersized fish, they keep one. Maybe one centimetre undersized, they'll get reamed by the fisheries and the book thrown at them. You know, businesses being destroyed because of marine parks. I think during the, when Gladys tried to lock fishos out of fishing pretty much from Newcastle to Illawarra, of course, not all parts in between that area, but these things are the major issues that fishos are actually dealing with. Businesses going out of business, reduced fishing tourism, due to these stupid laws. I mean, how would you tackle it? Why can the government, pretty much due to poor management, kill all these fish and nothing happens whatsoever? Well, there are two issues there. Um, one is the Moonee Lakes uh, Darling River fish kills. Um, I would separate that from the fishing issues uh, sure. concerning um, you know, marine lockouts and all of that sort of stuff. Um, um, I know the situation with the Menindee Lakes pretty well. I chaired an inquiry into the Murray-Darling Basin plan in the Senate. We heard we went to Broken Hill and we heard from people there. We looked into it. Um, pretty thoroughly, we heard from a lot of experts. Um, the thing is, Menindee Lakes were never um, permanent water, uh, uh, permanent uh, lakes. They were always what was called ephemeral. They were deepened in the 1950s in order to provide Broken Hill with um, permanent water supply, but um, but so they're man-made lakes and. Um, the lack of water in them is not important to water supply to Broken Hill anymore. They have alternative sources. It's mostly the people who have huts around them, shacks around them, and have a boat there, and they like to have water in there for recreational purposes. Now, that's all very well and good. I don't, I don't mind that, and in fact, I'm quite sympathetic to that. But to argue that that's an environmental need is uh, stretching it a little bit, considering it's a man-made lake. But, um, and the other thing is, nature um, used to only fill up the Menindee Lakes um, from time to time. Never, they were never permanent, um, permanently wet, depending on whether it was a dry year or a wet year. And in New South Wales, in fact, the eastern states of Australia, um, a good rule of thumb is to work on the assumption of a seven-year cycle. And in that seven years, you'll have two wet years, two dry years, and uh, three years, which are relatively average. And that, that pretty much covers it for farming in the eastern states of Australia. It's different in Western Australia and South Australia. So Menindee Lakes would, uh, uh, you know, typical seven-year cycle would probably have been dry, completely dry, in uh, uh, two years out of seven, um, very, very wet in uh, two years out of seven, and with some water in them. Uh, in the other years under natural circumstances. Now, um, the issue of the, of the fish kills, though, is uh, the, what's killing the fish is blue-green algae. Blue-green algae um, requires warm weather and um, static water, not moving anywhere. And the algae occurs naturally, um, and you get the right combination of uh, warm weather and the, the water not moving, and blue-green algae can bloom anywhere. It can bloom in your backyard if uh, uh, if it sits there, if the water sits there long enough, and you get the sun on it, and all that sort of stuff. It is not something that you can really criticise the government for. 
The criticisms of the government, though, are um, there are some legitimate criticisms to be made about how Menindee Lakes have been handled. And the main one is that twice in the last five years, four years, perhaps five years probably, they've let the water out, or a lot of the water out of the Menindee Lakes and sent it down the river, down the Darling River, joined up with the Murray River at Wentworth, and it flowed into the Lake Alexandrina in South Australia. Now, the argument that they used for doing that is because they said, well, because it's so hot out there at Menindee Lakes, it just evaporates. The problem I have with that, though, is, yes, it does evaporate in Melindy Lakes. That's quite legitimate. They send it down to Lake Alexandrina, and guess what happens to it there? It evaporates. 900 gigalitres a year evaporates from, uh, from the lakes, Lake Alexandrina and Lake Albert in South Australia. And those two lakes are also not natural environments, like Menindy Lakes has been altered by man. Those two lakes have been altered by man as well because there are barrages across the, um, the entrance to those lakes that stops the sea from coming in, keeps them artificially fresh. Now, that is not the natural state. The natural state is the Murray River mouth would be an estuary. The sea would come in and come out depending on uh, water levels. And um, um, if there was, well, there would be evaporation in the lower lakes, but uh, quite a lot of the time it would be seawater that was evaporating or a mixture of seawater and freshwater. But because there are barrages across the entrance to these lakes, it's only freshwater that's being evaporated. So what we have, in fact, is water being taken from productive use, farmers who are growing wheat, rice, um, cotton, uh, fruit, vegetables up in Queensland, New South Wales and along in Victoria, along the Murray River as well and the, and the tributaries to the Murray, Water is being taken off those farmers, sent down the Murray um, uh, and down the uh, Darling when it's flowing, the Barwon when it's flowing, um, into Lake Alexandrina and Lake Albert, particularly Lake Alexandrina, where it is keeping a what would normally be an estuarine lake, a lake which is part salty, part fresh, artificially fresh. It's a, not a natural environment. I think it's a scandal myself. I think it's just outrageous that... We are taking all this productive water that could be used for all sorts of useful things, including in more environmental watering, and sending it down to be evaporated in South Australia. It's an absolute scandal. I wanted to talk about, and I'm not sure your position on this, um, the fishing tax. I know we had a discussion about it a little bit previously, and I want to talk about, because I'm not a big fan of bureaucracies. Most people that know me uh, believe that I disagree with that. Um, I did a bit of research the other day. A lot of the fishing... Uh, license money is not being put to where it should be. 49% of that money, so approximately of $11 million, $5.5 million goes to compliance and about $3.5 million of that $5.5 million actually goes to just the payment system. So before we even start to go fishing... Uh, pretty much for me to pay a fee, then the government to make me comply, whether that's by inspection or it's out on the water. Uh, we were $5.5 million deep of, of this bureaucracy. So I want to get the thoughts on what the Liberal Democrats think about uh, you know, the fishing licence. I caught the fishing tax. Uh, is fishing really in a better way than it was, say, 15, 16, 17 years ago when the fishing licence was actually put in? Because I would say, no, I think uh, fishing's not in a, a better a better way. Sure, they stock lakes, they do certain things with it, but just to make me comply, make me pay for the licence, it's a large bureaucracy that I think we just don't need. So just a general thoughts on the issue and what the, I guess, if there's an LDP policy on that. 
Yes. Well, very good questions. And I think uh, to cut a long story short, the recreational fishing situation in New South Wales is not in good shape and needs substantial reform. Um, the, um, the policy of the Liberal Democrats on, on this issue is for the government to keep its nose out of um, most areas, um, uh, broadly speaking, but obviously nobody, including fishers, want to lose the resource. They want the fish to be there when they go and catch them. So government involvement to the extent that it protects the resource is a legitimate um, involvement. Sure. Um, so bag and size limits, for example, there's no real problem with that. Yep. Um, um, the government getting involved in assisting with habitat um, breeding grounds, artificial reefs, that sort of stuff. There's a case for that. Um, but but you're right in terms of uh, the issue rela relating to fishing licences and the revenue from the fishing licences. Where is that money going? In very large part to pay for bureaucracies, not even really um, in, a, in particularly um, effective compliance and certainly not uh, doing very much to reinvest in the fishing uh, industry, the recreational fishing industry, uh, making it um, hospitable and welcome with plenty of fish available to be caught. And uh, that's a problem. So when, uh, I mean, obviously in an ideal world, we would even argue against fishing licences. You know, why should you need a permit to catch something that occurs in nature? But the argument for fishing licences is that the money can then be used to help the resource so that there's something for everybody um, and for years to come. So we're sort of somewhat sympathetic to that idea, but it absolutely demands that that money be used well. And at the moment, you could pretty much um, say without any contradiction, the money is not being used well, and there's a lot of things that need to improve. One of the things that I intend to address when I'm um, elected, assuming I'm elected New South Wales Parliament, is the... Um, uh, the lack of um, a good policy, I suppose, uh, certainly a poor, is the poor administration of the recreational fishing sector, both uh, freshwater and, uh, and uh, saltwater um, in New South Wales. They are not done well at the moment. I just, I just get concerned, too, that a lot of businesses, I think it was on uh, 2GB, one of the fellas uh, down there in Batemans Bay was actually talking to Ray Hadley about a lot of the businesses. They invited, I think it was the Labor government at the time, down to Batemans Bay to chat with them, the fishing groups. It was a big mistake because what the Labor Party ended up doing, I think, at the time was create marine parks in the best part of the fishing spots in Batemans Bay, which is very disappointing and was the destruction of a lot of business uh, in Batemans Bay. My, I guess my biggest point is the bureaucracy of the expenditure. We don't know where that money is going. Which groups that put grants in are getting their hands on it? Are they green groups trying to you know, shut down fishing? And I guess my main point, too, is the government controlling my fishing, that fishing should be free for everybody. And I think I don't want the government to own my fishing. If, let's say, in the future, fishing licences drop, the government says, well, you know, we can't really manage this anymore. They've got to start laying off staff. Inevitably, they could say in the future, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, well, this is becoming too difficult. We're laying off too many staff. There's just no appetite for fishing. Oh, we're just going to ban the lot. That, that, that's my main concern. Yes, and it's a legitimate concern. And um, there's, it reminds me of what uh, shooters were like. Um, uh, 30 years ago, 
you know, we didn't have, we didn't really know how many there were. Um, uh, they didn't like getting involved in things. They didn't like politics. They stayed away from it, and uh, and governments treated them with an absolute lack of respect. Now, in some respects, you know, not that I want to overstate this, but to some extent, the fact that shooters have been forced into clubs has been a good thing. Um, we now know how many there are. Uh, they all have to have a licence, which um, the positive side of that, at least we can count them. Um, and uh, they're more organised and they can be reached more easily. We're, we're a good way behind that position with fishing. Fishermen are reluctant to join clubs. Most of them don't. There's not a really good idea of how many there are. I'm told there's about five, 550,000 um, licences that have been paid for and 300,000 people that are exempt. So we're getting close to a million uh, recreational fishers, but the numbers are a little bit fluffy. Um, now, if they were all organised, if they all voted on the fishing issue, Boy, wouldn't that make a difference? I mean, that's more than there are shooters um, in um, in New South Wales. That would be, um, you know, quite a spectacular um, uh, lobby group. And um, but the challenge is to uh, turn that into a, an, an effective political force. Um, it's one of the things that um, that uh, I would like to see happen now. If that was the case, I don't think we would be dealing with stupid policy such as proposed marine lockouts. And, um, um, you know, some of the ideas that that get trotted out and have to be dealt with and sometimes can't be defeated is this idea that rather than allow fishing to occur and allow fishers to um, manage a resource um, uh, to... Uh, work on bag and catch limit uh, size limits and those sorts of things, they just shut people out of them. They just say, well, you can't go there. Um, the, fishers, the fishermen themselves often know where the breeding grounds are for, um, for fish, for example. Where uh, in Botany Bay, for example, um, there has been a lot of seagrass removed as a result of um, uh, the airport and various other things that have occurred there. Um, but there's been no attempt to put seagrass back again. Now, seagrass is where fish breed, or some species of fish breed. Um, so fishermen know that, um, but rather than have put seagrass back again, the government and the, uh, and the, and the anti-fishing people are inclined to say, oh, well, we should just not allow fishing in, in certain areas there. Now, um, I, I think there's much, much better ways to do things than are being done, um, and... Uh, we'll even get better results if uh, we can convince fishermen to um, make their presence felt via their vote. It's interesting because Niall Blair, the Minister for Primary Industries, that was his main cornerstone of his argument, was the was the seagrass. And I think uh, Ray Hadley took him to task on that and said, you can't be serious. If you're going to keep that up, you're going to be in opposition come uh, the next election. Yes, yes. And, and the, the sad thing is Niall Blair is probably... Um, closer to being a good guy than a bad guy in the government in terms of fishing and support for fishing. There, even though Niall Blair has, um, can be criticised uh, um, for what he hasn't done, um, he's nowhere near as bad as some of the others 
um, could be if they had their chance. And some people say to me too, well, what's the difference between a fishing? You, you pay a hunting license. And I often say, well, you know, I don't need a license to hunt ferals on private land, public land. I can totally understand because that needs to be managed. You need to know how many people are going to be in the forest. You don't want hundreds of people shooting in a small area. I mean, that totally makes sense. There's a huge difference that I see between a fishing pole and a firearm. I think it's, there's a definitely a correl- <laughs> no correlation between, you know, between the two. I want to get on to, it's good that we had a chat about that. Thanks for discussing that. Uh, Sarah Hanson-Young, our good friend uh, in the Senate. Um, she's not out whale watching at the moment, which is absolutely fantastic, spending our money, which is great. Uh, how's that going? We know there's a, a, a court case. Um, she's very angry with you. She thinks, I guess you're a misogynist, but uh, she's throwing out misandry left, right and centre. So tell us about that. Okay, um, so she sued me for defamation on two grounds. One is that uh, I called her a hypocrite. The other one that I said she was a misandrist, they're the two grounds. So all this huff and puff and nonsense about slut-shaming and so forth is um, is complete bullshit. She's not suing on those grounds. Um, and uh, uh, the case uh, is ongoing. Uh, we actually have a date for a hearing in April, but... We have also sought to have it dismissed on the grounds that it relies on what was said in Parliament, which is protected by parliamentary privilege. Um, our, our initial application to have it struck out, have the action struck out on that grounds failed, but uh, my barrister is of the opinion that the, um, the basis for that was um, uh, not sound, and so we are appealing that dismissal. So if uh, our appeal... If my appeal succeeds, the case will be stopped because um, uh, we've managed to have the whole case struck out on the grounds that it infringes um, parliamentary privilege. If uh, that fails, uh, then we will move on to the substantive case, the the, uh, the defamation hearing itself. And there is it, it, currently, as I said, we have a date set for that in April, but um, uh, there are a few things that need to happen for that to uh, uh, to actually occur as um, uh, as uh, proposed. So um, uh, my feeling is that, um, uh, in my opinion, this is primarily a re-election stunt by uh, by uh, Sarah, and my feeling is that uh, she will milk it as much as she can in the leading up in the lead up to the election. And then she'll lose interest in it once the election is over. Well, she only barely just got in last time. I always wonder with her whether, when I see her in the media, obviously never met her in person, whether she actually believes this stuff or she's just a professional victim or it's a PR stunt. I always wonder about it. Yes. Well, um, my, I mean, my, my opinion is uh, uh, um, she's a, uh, she likes playing the victim card. Um She's she, I think, probably convinces herself that she is representing somebody. Women are downtrodden. Um, she's, <laughs> she tells people that she's young. She's not young, really. She tells people she's young, but she's not. Um, <laughs> she used to be young, but uh, that was quite a few years ago. Didn't we all? Um, didn't we all? Uh, I, I suspect she probably believes uh, uh, much of what she uh, she says, but. Before she got elected, um, she was a bank teller. Um, she's, you know, I don't think she'd win any Nobel prizes. Put it that way. And, <laughs> she um, might go to that, back to that if she doesn't get re-elected at the, you know, May election or whenever it is in 2019. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, there's a distinct possibility of that occurring. As you said, she didn't didn't achieve enough votes to get re-elected on a normal half Senate election at the last Senate election last uh, in 2016. So unless she improves her vote um, from that, then she won't get elected. But South Australia is an interesting state, and it's hard to make predictions about it um, because of the Nick Xenophon factor. Um, ah, yes, Nick Xenophon. He was, he was there last time. He won't be there next time. You know, where are those votes going to go? Centre Alliance is now the party that uh, taken over from the Nick Xenophon um, party. Will they be able to keep votes? Um, will will people who might have voted for Nick Xenophon go and vote for the Greens? Nobody knows the answer to those questions. It's interesting. You're on the 7.30 report. Now, one of your best media performance wasn't actually about firearms, actually. It was with uh, Virginia Trioli. Do you remember that interview? <laughs> yes. And um, it was it was very funny, actually, I might add, when you said, basically, do I have to remember what she said verbatim for it to be true? And she goes, yeah, well, yeah I reckon you do. And you go, no, nah, I don't reckon I don't. Best call yeah. I've ever heard probably from a media personnel or a politician ever. Yes, well, she was essentially... She's very uh, angry, I found, from the very forceful interview, very feminist-type, uh, I guess you might say, uh, attitude well, towards a, you. Well, was hugely partisan, of course. I mean, she wasn't being a journalist. She was being a past partisan advocate for, um, for Hanson Young. You know, she, she never uh, wouldn't tolerate this, this uh, argument that I put that... Uh, uh, that uh, Sarah had said, uh, well, stop. Uh, well, um, they wouldn't need pepper spray if uh, men didn't uh, would stop raping them. Uh, she would just wouldn't believe, you know, that I, that she had even said something. Said uh, that Sarah had even said something like that. Now, of course, she wasn't there. I was, and yet there she was, essentially saying, um, uh, "No, I don't believe you." In, in, inferring, um, uh, not not in so many words, you're a liar. Um, so I got a bit indignant about that, and um, um, but I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, you walk off and uh, you think, okay, what did that achieve? And uh, I often wonder whether those those interviews that I did afterwards uh, achieved anything at all, because in in retrospect, um, a lot of people heard about me, although that wasn't obviously my intention, because um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kept being invited on. Um, um, I think it was my opinion. It was all part of um, of uh, Sarah's attempt to create a bit a bigger a big controversy and help her re-election prospects. Are you looking to buy a new or used firearm? Do you want to sell that safe queen to fund your next purchase? Then go to OzGunSales.com. We have over 200 registered firearms dealers Australia-wide and thousands of shooters using the site daily. There are over 2,500 firearms listed, so you're certain to find exactly what you're looking for. We have over 50 years of firearms industry experience, including 8 years online. So why wouldn't you advertise with us? The one and only genuine original Ozguns. Based on that Sky News interview, it seemed like you were blacklisted there for a while, but you've uh, got back on Sky News just recently, which is good promotion for the party. But one of my Patreon supporters, Chris, said, will David be making more regular appearances on the Paul Murray show? You seem to have a bit of a, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, a bit of a bromance with the old Paul Murray. He seems okay at times. I do like a lot of what he says, but sometimes I shake my head at other things that he says, and I think that's a bit of a leftist view, which is not necessarily bad. I think common sense is a great view, but will you be going back on Sky I use more regularly and if on Paul Murray as well. Yeah, Paul's just returned uh, 
so Paul's been on a break until after Australia Day, so he's only just returned now. Um, and uh, yes, uh, I, I have been in touch with him in the last couple of weeks, and uh, he assures me I'll be back on. Um, I, um, uh, but you're right. Um, and Sky uh, um, uh, decided that uh, they'd have a break from me. Um, one of the reasons for that Ro- is because Rowan Dean had a permanent break too. If people know yeah, Rowan, Rowan Dean. Dean as well. Oh no, Ross Cameron had a. Oh, it was Ross Cameron? Break. Sorry, I thought it was yeah, Rowan Dean. Rowan, My yeah, bad. No, My Rowan's bad. back on again. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the uh, issues is that uh, there are there's a little lobby group that threatens their advertisers and um, um, and and says, well, you shouldn't be advertising because people have said X Y Z. And, uh, of course, they misrepresent what XYZ is. The, the words that they always use are racist or bigot or sexist or Nazi. I think, there's, I think that covers the field. White supremacist. And, I forgot that one too. Yeah, well, yeah, that fits <laughs> into the racist, though. <laughs> True. So, so they, will, they will then contact the advertisers, and the advertisers are often, or their advertising agencies are often not very senior people with, you know, no real street smarts won't realise that they're being bombarded by a small lobby group and they will go weak at the knees and go, oh, dear, we better not stay on there because people are angry with us. And uh, and so they will then reconsider their advertising. It's um, it's a bit of a problem, actually. I mean, in, in the end, I suppose, free speech would say the lobby, these lobby groups um, are allowed to do that. The advertisers can do what they like. But um, it has it has scared I think they're over it now because they've got new management as well. But I think it has scared the um, um, people at um, um, Sky, and it's certainly it's, it has had an effect in America too. So th- this is uh, Australia never invents anything really, and it hasn't done, been done elsewhere. This has been going on for quite a while in um, in the United States, attacking the advertisers who appear on non-left. I wouldn't call them right-wing necessarily, but non-left media um, programs. And, of course, advertisers on Fox News, um, which the left hate, yeah. um, they are under relentless attack, absolutely relentless I think they attack. tried it in Victoria, didn't they, David? Um, when Was it Sky News? I think it might have been some advertising for Sky News on the, the trains in, in Victoria yes, as well. That happened right. as well, so, yeah. That's right. So after an interview um, on Sky News, the Victorian government said, oh, we're going to take Sky News off um, train stations. And the funny thing was that Sky News wasn't even on the train stations. So, um, yeah, it gets a bit bizarre at times. But this is an imported uh, strategy. Um, I think we're starting to get on top of it now. We've, we've worked out how to deal with it. But um, it was part of the reason why um, Sky News uh, has been a chat for the last three or four months has uh, changed this mix of interviewees. Mm. I think it's been good publicity for the party, though, definitely having you on there. Yes, oh, yes. Um, um, there, It's not a huge audience. And so, I mean, I they used to call me a lot because and get me on a lot because I live in Sydney and I can get to the studio in Sydney in about 20 minutes. And so when they were short of someone to call, they'd call me. Um, I don't I don't think I need to be on that often for it to be beneficial. I think my priority will be on when I've got something to say or when I'm in a situation where um, 
having a bit of a chat about the day's issues, such as with Paul Murray, who I get on very well with at a personal level. He and I are um, kindred souls in many ways. Um, uh, is, is is an option. I'm, I think I used to I used to rarely knock back an interview on Sky. I, I think that'll have to change now. I don't think there's any particular reason for me to um, be there. You know, um, every every second day. And um, uh, but Paul Murray is special. He and as I said, he and I are kindred souls. He's a cigar smoker like me. Um, he tells everybody he voted for me at the last election. And um, we agree on many things. There are times, of course, when when we don't agree, but we're such both such good fellows that we um, it never affects our relationship. We we still like each other even when he's wrong. Getting onto the crux, I guess, of this show, which is the most important thing, you're quitting the Senate and running for an upper house seat in New South Wales. Now, I had my suspicions, as I said a bit earlier, but uh, what prompted this? It's a long term plan for me. I've been doing most of the heavy lifting in the Liberal Democrats now for a long, long time. The, um, the party office has been my office now since 2005. Um, and uh, the truth is, being both a legislator, a member of parliament, and, you know, the, basically the manager of the party is, um, uh, is a very heavy workload. And uh, it's time for somebody else to share the load. Um, I like being a legislator. I think I'm good at it. I'm good on the crossbench. I negotiate with government, with ministers. I know when to leverage my vote, all that sort of thing. So those skills I picked up in the Senate, um, developed in the Senate, discovered that I'm, that I'm actually quite competent at that sort of thing. Um, I can apply to the Legislative Council, but the party is evolving. As you said, we've now got four seats. Um, um, we've now got enough funding that we can set up a separate office so it doesn't need to be based in my office. And and the reality is that the issues that I really get animated about, you know, really get me angry, are more state issues than federal issues. Yes, I know, I, I know I've had lots to say about taxes and spending and deficits and all those sorts of things, and they, they get my attention, no question about it. But at the end of the day... The things that I really get agitated about are nanny state stuff and red tape stuff. And I've run two inquiries. In the, before the last election, I, I chaired the nanny state inquiry. And in this parliament, I run the uh, red tape inquiry. Over and over again, we would come up with issues which annoy people, make pe- businesses less successful, or just stop people from enjoying life. And they would be state issues rather than federal issues. There are some federal issues, of course, amongst it all, and we looked for federal issues as much as we could, being a Senate inquiry. And, of course, the federal government has involvement in a fair number of issues via the COAG system or some other joint joint state um, committee. But many, many times the primary responsibility lies with um, state governments. So you mentioned fishing already. But four-wheel drives and access to the bush, shooting, of course, is a state issue, notwithstanding the National Firearms Agreement. Motorbikes, another of my passion. Modified cars, speed limits, um, even that, um, straight out nanny state issues like bicycle helmets. The self-defence issue, which is uh, something I'm quite passionate about. That's a state issue, not a not a federal issue. Um, alcohol licensing. Uh, gambling, licensing, smoking, e-cigarettes, vaping, gambling. 
lockouts. Lockouts, yep, yep. Assisted suicide's a state issue. You know, I had a big crack at that via the um, uh, the uh, ACT Northern Territory um, ability to legislate on that. And, of course, an issue which we've I've battled on quite a lot is cannabis, and that's fundamentally a state issue. I had a good crack at that in the Senate, but even if my... My bill in the Senate on cannabis had succeeded. Um, the reality is, cannabis would not have been um, allowed for recreational purposes um, anywhere. All I would have been doing is removing some of the federal restrictions on imports. So, if I really want to make a difference on on cannabis, then um, it'll have to be at the state level. Two questions here, but your top two or three things regarding firearms owners that you'd like to see pushed if you're elected in New South Wales. And you were just talking about self-defence, which is an absolutely big one from mine too, but I will take the question from one of my Facebookers. Jeffrey says, will he try for self-defence with firearm in the home? I know that's going to be difficult, but I'll add on to that question as well, saying what about things such as pepper spray outside the home first? I think that's important. We're seeing you know, major issues with you know people getting raped, murdered, just again recently in Victoria. Don't know when people you know, are going to learn that we need some form of self-defence. I think it's an absolute travesty what's happening at the moment. Um, we shouldn't force people to use self-defence, but your top two or three things, and then I guess about uh, Jeffrey's question about self-defense yeah so on on the firearms area um specifically there's uh, uh there's a couple of issues that are high on my list um there's some negatives that are occurring at the moment things going in the wrong direction the government uh, state government has recently decided that gel blasters um are prohibited weapons for example and uh prosecuting people yeah. and uh and also the plastic toys the imitation ones there's a big problem with that as well um the the thing is i mean it's getting way past the stage where uh, what guns do um is what really matters it's what guns look like that now is starting to be the key thing so i i what i'd like to do is stop some of the trends on the negatives as, as the first thing and then i'd like to improve things as well and one of the things that obviously um i think would would be a potentially winnable one would be relaxing the caliber restrictions on uh, on pistols um there's nothing no sense in being allowed to have a 38 but not a 45 for example it just makes no sense at all um and um and of course it it's uh, very restrictive for ipsc shooters who uh, i have great sympathy for so um uh so there i mean there's plenty more issues uh that i that I am concerned about, but um, there are a couple that off the top of my head. And I have done some work in the Senate on um, on the former, the, um, um, the the appearance issue. For example, I spoke to the former minister, Angus Taylor, and I've subsequently spoken to the new minister, uh, Linda Reynolds, on the fact that uh, the uh, application of appearance laws is is almost arbitrary, you know, the public servants are making up as they go along and it needs to be uh, needs to be remedied and with a consistent policy, um, not based on scary monster stuff, but based on something, some genuine principles. Um, I have, I also managed to get the Firearms Consultative Committee re, restarted and uh, uh, Angus Taylor agreed to that. Um, agreed to the appointment of the members, but never actually called a meeting because he was waiting until he had a decent agenda to to give them to work on. Um, the new minister, Linda Reynolds, called and 
the first meeting um, a few weeks ago, and by all accounts, um, it was a positive meeting. The other issue that I was working on at a federal level, and I will take up um, at the state level, is Airsoft. Um, at the federal level, my um, my uh, aim has been to ensure that when one of the states approves it at, under state law, that the federal government then says, OK, we're not going to put any barriers in the way in terms of import restrictions. And I've been talking to Angus Taylor about that, and uh, and I'm... I, I mentioned it to Linda Reynolds, but I'm not sure how far she, she got with that. We are actually feeling pretty confident that we will be able to legalise Airsoft in Western Australia um, during 2019. Um, the government in Western Australia has agreed in principle to legalise it, the Attorney-General in particular. There is a process of negotiations going on over um, what level of restrictions to place on it, but my information is that the end outcome is not in doubt that it will actually be approved. Surprisingly, considering WA is probably one of the most draconian states yeah. uh, in Australia, yeah. so it's very interesting. In terms of, in terms of real guns, yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can own a, a 50 cal Barrett in New South Wales, but yet I can't play a game that's played by, what, 70-plus percent of the whole entire world. It's just crazy. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's irrational. <laughs> And, but, you know, gun policy in this country has been irrational for a long time. We shouldn't be surprised by it. It's a terrible situation um, to be in. And, um, um, and you know, quite frankly, we're not winning. We are losing. We're slowly going backwards. Um, the less people know about uh, guns, um, because the less they are available, the less we talk about them, the less we see them, um, the less people are rational about guns. And... Um, um, you know, I, I, I can anticipate a period when kids playing cowboys and Indians going pow, pow, pow with their fingers will be some sort of, will result in some sort of disciplinary action the way we're heading. It is, I'm not at all encouraged by the way we're going at the moment. I mean, as you know, I, I did an interview with uh, quite a lengthy interview with Brad Towner from Arm in Heaven, which you know about. He's a lovely guy. I mean, he's put being put through the meat grinder by. New South Wales police over gel blasters when I was in Queensland just over the Christmas period uh, visiting my family up there. People were going and buying gel blasters across the border, which, you know, quote unquote, at the moment by the firearms registry, this is a quote determination. So nothing legally binding there. Yet people that bought five or six firearms for their kids, which are toys, uh, are being hit with some very, very serious firearms charges, unregistered firearms, having firearms without a license, uh, firearms with outside of the category, quote unquote, that they they can't really own. It's, it's very serious right now. And you know, Brad's been in major issues with the police and obviously the court system for the last, what, 18 months or so. And I, I guess he doesn't really see, he's, he's actually had to move to Queensland to restart his business. Like his life's been ruined, marriage ruined. He's got health issues. Uh, his business, obviously, about making money. And he's been doing this. It's not like he's been hiding from the police, David. He's been, you know, he's got his website. He's been freely available. Police have come to his uh, place of residence to chat to him about 
about it. Registry visited him at his parents' house in Newcastle before police have come when he had a shop in Paramount. Never been an issue for eight years. Then bang, all of a sudden, you know, major charges and he could spend time in prison. The major issue too, when I was speaking to his lawyer, was the firearms prohibition order, the FPO, which will be served on him, which will be for life. So at any, at any time, date, Christmas, workplace, function, at, even if you're at the local cinema, police can come and say, please come out here, escort you off the premises, search your vehicle, search your home, uh, just whenever they see fit. I, I find this extremely disturbing. Yes, and, and in particular because they, uh, they're not even firearms at all, they're just plastic toys. I agree, it's very disturbing. I mean, the, the good thing about Brad, I, I, I've, Brad's been to my office, so I've met Brad and uh, talked to him and, uh, and understand his situation. And I wish I could do more to help him, but obviously in a law case, politicians can't get involved, otherwise you have political cases. But um, um, what I, I mean, what I am encouraged by is the fact that Brad is not giving in. Brad is uh, standing his ground legally and uh, although it's costing him a fortune to uh, to do it, um, you know, I I have a degree of confidence that ultimately it'll end up before a judge who says, you've got to be kidding, get out of here, and uh, we'll send the, the police packing. That's, you know, that's what I, I long for, that kind of end point. That's um, ultimately these cases where the police have substantial discretion, um, and injustice is the end result of exercising that discretion. Ultimately, the police themselves are answerable to a court. Um, natural justice is a thing in in, um, uh, in uh, our legal system. Due process is a thing in our legal system. And the police can be held to account when they don't respect that. I find when they've got unlimited amount of funds to keep pushing this, I mean, they've pretty much ruined the poor guy's life as is. And frankly, he seems quite upbeat, which is still fantastic. But the major hardships he's endured based on... And the thing is, I don't know where this is coming from, whether this is coming from the politicians, whether it's coming from the hierarchy at the police. It's just entirely... No, and even if he does win that, David, if the... Yeah, no, no, the damage is, a lot of damage is done, that's right. Mm. I, I totally agree. It's not coming from politicians. Politicians. There is no, there is no political impetus for um, for this. It is coming from the bureaucrats. That is that is where most of this sort of policy comes from. If you're a minister and you go against the bureaucracy, uh, you need a degree of courage. Um, you need to be pretty confident about what you're doing. Um, you certainly need um, at least some support at the senior levels of your department. Otherwise, the buggers will white ant you. They will leak against you. Um, they will tell their friends in the media that this bloke's an idiot. And uh, before you know it, you won't have that job anymore. So um, it requires courageous, uh, uh, courageous ministers, not courageous in the Sir Humphrey sense, courageous in the genuine sense. And regrettably, it's only a minority of ministers who, are, who have courage. It is quite sad. I have dealt with lots and lots of ministers in, uh, in Canberra, and uh, some of them are courageous, but... Unfortunately, most of them are not. It's sad when the police minister is just a figurehead and the you know, police commissioner and or police union tend to run the show and dictate policy to you know, the upper echelons of the police force. Yes, I can only agree. One more question, just finish off on the Mark Latham issue. Do you think it will have any negative impacts on, say, the LDP being elected or, if not, uh, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party being re-elected in uh, New South Wales? No, I, I, I can't see it having, an effect, having an, much of an effect. I think... The, the reality is minor parties are as popular as ever. 
Um, I can't see that changing. Um, not necessarily because popular part, uh, minor parties are suddenly everything they've ever wanted, but because the major parties are unpopular. Nobody thinks either Gladys Berejiklian or Michael Daly is the answer to their political prayers. And a lot of parties, a lot of voters will look for somebody else and end up with a minor party. So I think the minor party vote in the New South Wales election will be as high as it's ever been, probably higher than it's ever been. Um, what we do know also is that the, the voting system there is somewhat sympathetic to minor parties. 21 um, um, members have to get elected, which means the last three or so candidates can be elected on less than a quota. Quota's four and a half percent, but the last three can generally be elected on less than that. In the last election, uh, the last state election, the last candidate got elected on less than 2%. So um, I would expect the shooters will hold their seats. I would expect One Nation will win one seat, perhaps two. Uh, the opinion polls have had them at, at the levels where they, would, they might win two. And I would expect that the Liberal Democrats will win one with an outside chance of a second one. Yep. And I don't think we will eat each other's votes very much at all. What shooters can do, of course, uh, is if they... And a lot of people will say, oh, why don't you just join forces? Well, of course, there's lots of things we don't agree on, um, um, as well as some things we do agree on. But there is nothing to stop those who... Um, might say, well, I'll vote for the Liberal Democrats, but I also hope the shooters get elected, go one and two. Or I hope my nation gets elected as well as the Liberal Democrats. You can go one and two either way as well. You can go one, two, three, four, five if you want. Preferences can make a difference. They don't always in, in New South Wales state elections, but uh, they can make a difference. And um, it's not a bad idea to to not, not just stick one above the line. It's not a bad idea to uh, to give a vote to any of the parties that you think are okay. I guess going on from that, and you did just bring that up, which is great. You know, some shooters are saying that there's already two elected you know reps in New South Wales advocating for gun owners. The LDP, you know, they're only going to split the vote. I guess what's your thoughts on that? I find that vote splitting. I think it's a bit of a fallacy. Nobody owns my vote. Uh, my I dictate where my vote goes. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, we're not we're not splitting the vote. Um, if you can. If you are a shooter and you want to vote for a pro-shooting candidate, but, for example, you also believe in low taxes, then you might want to vote for the Liberal Democrats. If you're a, um, uh, a shooter and you want to vote for a pro-shooting candidate, but you also happen to support the shooter's party on one of their issues that they're running on, something to do with agriculture, perhaps, uh, their farming-type uh, stuff, um, uh, then you might shoot, uh, might vote for them. Fact is, of course, shooters are not uh, single-dimensional people. Um, the thing that they have in common is their interest in shooting, but then they have very divergent views on all sorts of other things. So, one size does not fit all shooters. So, so it's um, perfectly okay to uh, to have different points of view, but um, but they should shoot. They should vote for um, a pro-shooting. Um, um, candidate because at the end of the day there's a limited number of us shooters and uh, and the more of us who get elected to parliament the better off we all are.
I've got a couple more questions, then we'll just move quickly onto a few quick Facebook questions just to finish off. Where do you think the numbers will be lost in the upcoming New South Wales election? I know Gladys came out probably about, Gladys Berejiklian, about three, four weeks ago, saying Labor don't do any deal with the shooters, you know, they're evil people basically. Do you think she's running a little bit scared at the moment? Do you think the numbers will be lost for the Liberal Party? It's going to be a close election. I think the Liberals are still in with a fair chance of winning. Nobody knows Michael Daly and he's not... He's not really resonating with the election electorate, I don't think. So having said that, neither is Berejiklian. And I, so she's not regarded as very exciting either in the way that no. Mike Baird was, was exciting. So, um, yes, the shooters are doing preference deals with the Labor Party and, uh, uh, and they want to win, take seats off the nationals. Um, so there, there is a bit of that going on. Um, I think in the upper house, uh, uh, Labor and Liberals could easily both lose a little bit. Um, the, the Christian Democrats could easily lose a seat. They, they're, they're by no means comfortable these days. Um, and, uh, but, and, but really the possibility is that the minor parties will go up and that none of the minor parties will go backwards. That's a definite possibility as well. Um, and uh, I, my prediction is that the Liberals will win the election, but not by much. It'll be a very, very close election. I think they might just squeak over the line. Um, I'm not too concerned about that because it'll also mean a close election in the upper house, the Legislative Council. And the closer it is, um, the closer the election is, including in the upper house, the more it will be balanced um, with Liberal and Labor, and that's, of course, and the crossbench will therefore have more leverage. And leverage in the crossbench is something I dream about. Well, maybe even a balance of power. You never know. If you're lucky enough, David, you might even get to work with our anti-gun friend, David Shoebridge. Yes, funny thing <laughs> about David Shoebridge is uh, he, uh, he is anti-gun, very, very anti-gun. Although, funnily enough, he calls himself almost a libertarian, which I, I find a bit bizarre. I think he needs <laughs> to look up a dictionary, quite frankly. But... Um, what I'm told, I, I've met, I've met uh, David Shoebridge once in my life, and I have to say he was quite civil. Um, people tell me that he is a bit like Lee Rhiannon um, in, in that he is invariably civil. And Lee Rhiannon was invariably civil. You know, I could barely agree on what day it was with Lee Rhiannon, and yet she was never rude, never nasty, never made personal attacks. David Shoebridge, I am told... Um, I don't know him well enough to know this for a fact myself, but I am told he is of a somewhat similar nature. And uh, his uh, former best friend, Jeremy Buckingham, is the one who engages in the, um, in the um, you know, the uh, ad homs, you know, the uh, personal, personal yes. attacks. That's what I've been told. Well, that's been a major fallout too, hasn't it? It has. That's what I mean. His former best friend, yes. Yes, very interesting. I want to go on just a quick, just, I guess, some quick responses. I don't want to leave out my Facebook listeners, David. Uh, just quickly from Tim, he says, will they be running a candidate in Penrith? So I guess that would be a lower house seat. Is that on the cards or no? Haven't worked out what seats we're running in yet. So I can't, I can't answer that question at the moment. We're still looking at um, which seats we'll be running in. But we will be running in some lower house seats, definitely. Absolutely. Jeffrey asked the question about self-defence, so we've already answered that. Uh, Andrew said, doing preference deals and his thoughts on the blame of the situation from the Murray-Darling Basin and uh, should there be a Royal Commission? As far as I'm aware, there might already be a Royal Commission. I'm not 100% sure. I did look it up prior. So thoughts on that? Yes, there's been a Royal Commission in South Australia. Um, Brett Walker, SC, 
was the commissioner. I think the report is due today um, uh, to the government, and they'll probably release it. Uh, um, they'll probably release the report for the next few days. Um, so there already has been a royal commission. Royal commissions are not something I know they've been a bit popular lately, um, but um, royal commissions are not necessarily a solution um, to everything. And we we have got the Murray Darling Basin plan. I think the Murray Darling Basin plan needs improvement, um, but it's a it's a very very complicated situation. The Productivity Commission has recently reported on the Murray, Dose, Murray Darling Basin plan as well, and there's been quite a range of inquiries, including the Senate inquiry which I chaired. So I'm not sure the Royal Commission would uh, solve it. Um, there's a bit of political reality that's got to be dealt with in. Uh, terms of South Australia and its water. Luke Williams says he wants to talk about deregulation. Suppresses is one of his major ones, semi-autos and military appearance, obviously, which is appearance laws, which we already spoke about that. But uh, suppresses, I think that would probably in the short term, maybe even the medium to long term, be something that we could definitely make some headway on. We see overseas almost mandatory in some countries, definitely mandatory on private property in some of those areas to you know help out farmers and noise, something we'd be looking at. Yes, we've got to get over this idea that suppressors are used by criminals to uh, silently sneak up and uh, shoot people without them knowing about it, without anybody knowing about it. We've got to, we've got to sort of um, improve the image of suppressors, if you like. I'm all in favour of them. I think uh, we'd be wonderful being able to shoot without having to wear earmuffs or, and, uh, or and if you forget to put your earmuffs on or, or whatever, you know, you risk your hearing. I think it'd be a great idea. But... Um, um, and as you said, they are almost mandatory in some countries. They're, they're advocated in others. Even in New Zealand, they're very they're regarded as being good neighbourly. Um, they're having quite a debate about them in America at the moment, and, uh, um, and so they, many of these arguments are being tri- tested and, and uh, trotted out over there. Um, as was always the case to do with anything uh, involving guns, Australia will be probably the last in the world to do anything about it, so I wouldn't hold my breath on it. That's anything. Jared asked a question about gel blasters, which I didn't want to discount his question, but we already answered the gel blast, which we discussed about. Um, I'm going to ask a question from Matt. I want people to think, David, it's not related to shooting. I want to think I'm giving you a fair shake and not letting you off light. You know, I always like to ask the hard questions. Unrelated to shooting, so I'll ask the question on his behalf. He says, ask David why he shat on... Uh, North Queensland cane farmers in regards to Wilma. Uh, we all, wanted, all we wanted was a choice of marketer, but he saw fit to try and stop this effectively, giving the monopoly to big foreign companies. Your thoughts on that one? That's a gross oversimplification and a misrepresentation of what occurred. The Queensland uh, sugar growers are peculiar um, people. They seem to think that once they've sold their, their sugar crop, they should still have a say over how it's marketed. And they have these sort of peculiar... Uh, marketing contracts where they still have a very small interest in um, how much it uh, is sold for on the market it makes very little difference but uh, but uh, they still think that gives them a say over who should market or how it should be marketed um, if you're a wool grower when you sell your wool um, whoever buys it then decides what they're going to do with it and how they're going to sell it so if you sell it to a wool broker that broker then decides how it's going to be sold if you sell your beef um, your cattle they, the, whoever buys them and owns them, they decide how that beef is going to be sold, whether it's going to be sold to the Japanese or the Japanese market or Americans or to the Europeans or to the domestic market or where it's going to go. Same goes for wheat and all the rest of it. 
I don't know why the sugar growers have got it in their head that somehow or other they should have a say over what happens to the sugar that they've sold to somebody else. It's not their product anymore. It's somebody else's product. And um, if they don't like the way that uh, the um, Wilma or anybody else is, uh, is uh, marketing their sugar, they don't have to sell it to them. That's where their decision ends. They, their decision, their control over their sugar ends once they've sold it, not, not afterwards. Last question, David, to finish off before I let you go. Very, very interesting one. Often I cop, I guess you'd say, a lot of heat for this, but I think it's just an honest summation of what's happening, not only in New South Wales, but around the country, about our gun policy and our wish list versus actual achievements of not only parties such as yourself, but other parties as well that represent or supposedly represent my interests of shooting. I know it's always good to advocate for shooting and yourself and other parties as well that advocate for my interests is absolutely fantastic. But as you know, I mean, actual achievements on the ground are very few and far between. How can we make sure in the future that if people want to put their vote in yourself or another pro-gun party, but let's say Liberal Democrats, that that is actually going to work out in an actual achievement on starting to claw back some of these laws? Obviously, I know it's difficult. I'm not naive to think that it's not increasingly difficult with the amount of anti-gunners that you know we have in this country. But political parties such as the LDP, Shooters and Fishers, or even the Nationals that try and say they represent my interests, aren't actually achieving a whole amount. And while difficult, I understand that, how can we move forward in the future to make sure there are some wins on the board and it's not just what we're going to say, it's actually what we're going to do? Because often I look at what people do and not what they say. It's a very good question. What, what tangible gains have we had for having uh, representatives of shooters, elected representatives of shooters in the New South Wales Parliament, Western Australian Parliament, Victorian Parliament, for example, um, for, um, well, uh, New South Wales since uh, 1995, Victoria the last four years, uh, Western Australia the last uh, six years. What, what tangible benefits have we seen as a result of that? Um, and the answer is not much, not very much at all. I can point to some, some little things that I've managed to improve a little bit at the federal level. But the truth is I lost the battle over the Adler. I fought very, very hard over that. I lost that. Um, and, um, and we are going backwards. Now, uh, the question is, okay, what's going to change that? Um, how are we ever going to get even you know, gun laws comparable to what New Zealand has got, for example, which has got very sensible gun laws and would be a vast improvement on, uh, on what Australia has? Um, how can we convince Australians that what New Zealand does is makes more sense than what we do. I'm not sure we can if uh, we stick to our current approach. Our current approach is saying, look, we're law-abiding people. We don't do any harm. The bad guys with the guns are the ones, the problem. We obey the law. The law is already strict. Um, you know, leave us alone. And uh, all of that is, is a legitimate argument. We make that argument all the time. But, um, you know, the truth is we're not making any progress. What will make progress? Um, my personal view is the self-defence issue, the self-defence issue. Um, and we're going to have to do that incrementally. We're not going to be able to go from um, saying no self-defence weapon is permitted, full stop, to you're allowed to have a gun for self-defence tomorrow. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is get people used to the idea that they should take responsibility for their own safety. So non-lethal means of self-defence, such as mace and pepper spray, 
um, shouldn't be restricted at all. It should be no restrictions on anyone carrying those things for their self-defence. So then if we accept the principle that people have a, have a right to protect themselves, if you, if you want to be a defenceless victim, then you go right ahead, but the rest of us, we choose a different course. Um, that's that's a, uh, a mentality change that I think Australians would embrace. And then it becomes a question of, okay, well, what's wrong with off-duty cops, um, off-duty uh, people who are used to carrying guns, carrying them, um, you know, uh, not just when they're working? If they know how to use a gun, why shouldn't they be able to uh, carry those guns at other times? You never quite know where they might need them. And it's not as if they're dangerous because they carry them when they're on the job. Why shouldn't they carry them when they're not on the job? So, you know, I think uh, that would be the next step after that. Then after that, perhaps we could talk about uh, guns at home. Um, why shouldn't you be able to have a gun at least in your home? Um, your home is your castle. Um, your family is the most important thing to you. And uh, and here you are, at defenceless, essentially, against um of people who would do you harm. That that would be a winnable argument perhaps down the road. Um, we are still a long way from being uh, in the situation where a lot of countries are where we can say, look, I am feeling threatened. There are people who have made threats against me. I have a genuine cause for concern. Now I'd like to have a permit to allow me to carry a firearm for self-defence. Yep. Um, and then the, the final step would be the constitutional carry that America has, and frankly, I, I I don't think that's a realistic option for us in the foreseeable future, not a, or even in the, the distant future. I think it would be a tough one to win that yeah. one. I mean, I appreciate your candid honesty. Uh, you know, when Sarah Hansen-Young says things like, well, men shouldn't rape, I mean, well, we do know that, but there are people out there that break the law. And people often tell us, well, if you vote for us, this could be a pro, you know, it could be any pro-gun party may say, you know, well, if you vote for us, you know, we need more bums on seats in Parliament. And while I agree with that, we've also had 1996, we've had a long time since Port Arthur, getting on to 22, 23 years. When are we going to get enough bums on seats in Parliament to make a difference. We can't have this provision of, well, exactly. we, just, we just need more people. If we only if you vote for us and we had more people, then we'd be able to get something done. But we've had 21 years, 22, 23 years. It's a long time to you know, have very little wins on the board. At least I, I, I appreciate, actually, you're the first person in a long time that's actually said, well, yeah, because some people often get upset with me and say, well, what have I done? And I said, I don't get paid $170,000 a year to represent your interests. That's what the people that we're elected to do and have we if we count all the pro-gun parties and being elected in each state and how much that's costing the taxpayer in mean, the millions of dollars are we getting that benefit uh in in reasonable quality firearms legislation that's right and and i think shooters have got to be a little more critical about accepting the assurances and the the blandishments of uh, candidates as well um i mean some parties for example will tell you they are pro-shooters and you think, oh, well, that's good, you can vote for them. But then you say, okay, well, so what is your policy? What, what is your party's policy on, on uh, firearms? And they'll say, oh, well, we wouldn't want anything to be any, any more restrictions to be, imposed, uh, to be imposed. So you think the National Firearms Agreement is all right? Oh, yes, we think the National Firearms Agreement is all right as long as it doesn't, it doesn't get changed, doesn't make, isn't made any worse. Now... Uh, frankly, I don't think that's the least bit acceptable. No, that's, neither do I. Status quo is not acceptable. Status to me. quo is not acceptable. We cannot, we cannot 
say the National Firearms Agreement is fine. New Zealand has um, nothing even remotely like the National Firearms Agreement provisions, and it's a very, very safe country. Switzerland, of course, we all we all know there more guns there than almost any other country apart from uh, America uh, on a population basis, and it's safer than Australia. So we know that there is no need for the National Firearms Agreement. So there is also no need for any party which claims to be pro-shooters be defending the National Firearms Agreement. My view is blow up the National Firearms Agreement. Get rid of the damn thing. Um, destroy it completely. Give the uh, control over guns back to each of the state governments and let them then decide what's going on. And... Uh, and uh, uh, under those circumstances, I'm pretty convinced we can convince at least some of the state governments that things are unnecessarily restrictive. And uh, then if, if we get some of them that are um, uh, see that and start to wind back some of their more ridiculous things, the other ones will ultimately follow. And uh, um, so I, am, I would say to shooters when you're exercising your vote, if you're voting for uh, what you think is a pro-shooting candidate, because they happen to think the National Firearms Agreement is just fine, you are not using your vote well. I always thought it'd be interesting if, you know, one state just broke away from the NFA, whether that would not make a difference or whether it would really set a catalyst up to, for, for some quite decent changes. But um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'd like to try that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we, I can't look into my little crystal ball. But, uh, David, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving me quite a large chunk of your time today. I really do appreciate it. David Lineholm represents the Liberal Democrats, Senator for New South Wales, running in the upcoming New South Wales March election in in the upper house. So if you think David uh, is worth your vote, certainly uh, give him a vote or preference him at the bare minimum if gun rights mean a single thing to you. So David, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.